Welcome to the Chicago Poetry Tour podcast, produced by the Poetry Foundation, publisher of Poetry Magazine. This is tour number 21, the Hall Library. This tour is set in the Hall Library in Chicago's South Side and features one of the most celebrated Chicago poets, Gwendolyn Brooks. The Chicago Poetry Tour is a multimedia tour of poetry written in and about Chicago. It features a wide range of poets, set in a variety of neighborhoods and landmarks. The tour explores 22 sites around the city and showcases the dynamic and legendary history of poetry in Chicago through archival and contemporary recordings of poets and scholars, local musicians, and historic photos. You can take the whole tour for free at poetryfoundation.org. I myself have only tried to uh, record life and, and interpret it as I have seen it. Gwendolyn Brooks is recognized as one of the greatest American poets of the 20th century, and the life that she wrote about was grounded here on Chicago's South Side. When I was uh, 15, I remember going to our neighborhood library and finding a book called uh, Caroling Dusk, Caroling Dusk, and it contained the work of uh, the Cotters, uh, Joseph Cotter, uh, Jr. and Sr., and... Um, Langston Hughes, Sterling Brown, County Cullen, Claude McKay. And it was a delight to me to find that uh, it was not only Paul Lawrence Dunbar who was writing poetry and being published, but all these others. So I thought there was some hope for myself because by that time I, I knew that what I wanted to do was to write poetry. Like the library, young Gwendolyn's house was also full of books, thanks to her parents, with everything from the Harvard classics to contemporary black writers. But at school, her literary ambitions weren't exactly encouraged. No, indeed, and there certainly wasn't any emphasis on writing when I was going to school. There was uh, no emphasis on creativity. In fact, when I had a little, in elementary school, when I had a little flair in my compositions, the teacher would say, where did you get that? You must have stolen that. You couldn't have thought of that by yourself. In the early 1930s, at the age of 16, Brooks attended a reading by one of her heroes, Langston Hughes. He came to recite in my uh, family's church. With his many hands on each ivory key, he made that poor piano moan with melody, oh, blues, swaying to and fro. And uh, my mother insisted that I take some poems with us. And uh, she wanted me to show them to him, which I did. And he said, you are very talented. Keep writing. Someday you'll have a book published. Hughes also urged her to read modernist poets, especially Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot, and to write as much as possible. While still in school, Brooks contributed nearly 100 poems to the Chicago Defender, the leading voice among African-American newspapers at the time. In the early 1940s, her work began to appear in national magazines, including poetry. Her first book, A Street in Bronzeville, received instant critical acclaim. In it, Brooks demonstrates her mastery of the techniques of modernism, using precise, unsentimental language and telling detail to portray black urban life. In one poem, Kitchenette Building, hopes and dreams are constrained by practical concerns. We are things of dry hours and the involuntary plan. 
grade in and gray. Dream makes the giddy sound, not strong like rent, feeding a wife, satisfying a man. But quit a dream, send up through onion fumes. It's white and violet, fight with fried potatoes, and yesterday's garbage ripening in the hall. Flutter or sing an aria down these rooms, even if we were willing to let it in. Had time to warm it, keep it very clean. Anticipate a message, let it begin. We wonder, but not well, not for a minute, since number five is out of the bathroom now. We think of lukewarm water, hope to get in it. Gwendolyn Brooks reading Kitchenette Building. Where there was mama in the house, there was paper. Gwendolyn Brooks's daughter, Nora Brooks Blakely, is the artistic director of Chocolate Chips Theater Company in Chicago. And she was, and she was writing, or she was typing, on her uh, manual typewriter. She tried an electric typewriter briefly once. That just did not work out. And she never used a computer. She always used notebooks and manual typewriters. To this day, I can see my mother at the dining room table writing with a bookcase uh, right behind her with the cookie jar and the turtle jar that had papers in it and so forth. Brooks's next book traces the arc of a young black girl becoming a woman. Annie Allen won a Pulitzer Prize for Brooks. She was the first black author to win one. This poem, The Rights for Cousin Vit, is one of the many she wrote that celebrate the flamboyant characters she knew. Vit was really named Verley, and she was so full of life, so uh, full of grit and spice and daring that it was hard to imagine her really leaving. So this is my impression as I attended her funeral when her casket was being carried out. Carried her unprotesting out the door. Kit back the casket stand, but it can't hold her. That stuff and satin aiming to enfold her. The lids contrition nor the bolts before. Oh, oh, too much, too much. Even now, surmise, she rises in the sunshine. There she goes, back to the bars she knew, and they repose in love rooms and the things in people's eyes. Too vital and too squeaking must emerge. Even now, she does the snake hips with a hiss slops the bad wine across her shantung, talks of pregnancy, guitars, and bridge work, walks in parks or alleys, comes haply on the verge of happiness, haply hysterics, is. Gwendolyn Brooks reading The Rights for Cousin Vit. Her third book of poetry was called the Bean Eaters. 
I use that title because I've always loved uh, Van Gogh's famous painting, The Potato Eaters, which you've probably seen. And um, I love that title, th that name too. And I said to myself, gee, I wish that I had thought of, of uh, the potato eaters before he did. But then I said to myself, the bean eaters is probably more appropriate for uh, this collection of blacks who are not very rich. And uh, they're quite poor, most of them in the book. And uh, it's appropriate because a pound of beans in such a family will go farther than a pound of potatoes. You just add more water. Here's Gwendolyn Brooks reading the title poem from The Bean Eaters. They eat beans mostly, this old yellow pear. Dinner is a casual affair. Plain chipware on a plain and creaking wood. Tin flatware. Two who are mostly good. Two who have lived their day but keep on putting on their clothes and putting things away. And remembering, remembering with twinklings and twinges as they lean over the beans in their rented back room that is full of beads and receipts and dolls and cloths, tobacco crumbs, vases and fringes. I wish I could read that last line as fast as it ought to be read so that you get an immediate impression of a room with a lot of stuff in it. <laughs> Gwendolyn Brooks reading The Bean Eaters. In writing your poem, tell the truth as you know it. Tell your truth. Don't try to sugar it up. Don't force your poem to be nice or proper or normal or happy if it does not want to be. Remember that poetry is life distilled. Midway through her career, issues surrounding race in America became more urgent in Gwendolyn Brooks's writing. In 1963, she began a series of university teaching jobs, which put her in touch with a new generation of writers. In 1967, she attended the second Black Writers Conference at Fisk University. The young poets that I met then had as a motto Black poetry is poetry written by blacks, about blacks, to blacks. Throughout her work, Brooks had been looking hard at race and violence. A Street in Bronzeville includes a poem about a lynching, and The Bean Eaters has two poems on the murder of Emmett Till. But the events of the late 1960s brought a new intensity to her views. When Martin Luther King was assassinated, Riots broke out in many places in the country, in Los Angeles, Detroit, Chicago, other places. And a riot is certainly a temptation to any poet's pen. And I got my particular inspiration for my particular riot poem when I saw a half-page photograph of young rioters coming down our Madison Street in Chicago. And it occurred to me to wonder how a young white liberal or an old white liberal would respond to such a confrontation, such an announcement. And I named my liberal John Cabot. I have under my title something that was frequently said by Martin Luther King. A riot is the language 
of the unheard. Here's Gwendolyn Brooks reading Riot. Riot is the language of the unheard. John Cabot, out of Wilma, once a Wycliffe, all white-blue rose below his golden hair, wrapped richly in right linen and right wool, almost forgot his jaguar and light bluff, almost forgot Grand Tully, which is the best thing that ever happened to Scotch, almost forgot the sculpture at the Richard Gray and Distelheim, the kidney pie at Maxim's, the Grenadine de Buffet Mazoanry, because the Negroes were coming down the street, because the poor were sweaty and unpretty, not like two dainty Negroes in Winnetka, and they were coming toward him in rough ranks, in seas, in windsweep. They were black and loud and not detainable and not discreet. Gross, gross, Ketue Grossier, John Cabot itched instantly beneath the nourished white that told his story of glory to the world. Don't let it touch me. The blackness, Lord, he whispered to any handy angel in the sky. But in a thrilling announcement, on it drove and breathed on him and touched him. In that breath, the fume of pig foot chittering and cheek chilly, malign mocked John. And in terrific touch, old averted doubt jerked forward decently, cried, Cabot, John, you are a desperate man, and the desperate die expensively today. John Cabot went down in the smoke and fire and broken glass and blood, and he cried, Lord, forgive these niggas that know not what they do. Gwendolyn Brooks reading Riot. By 1968, Brooks was an established public figure. She was appointed Poet Laureate of Illinois and frequently gave readings and workshops. While she was embraced by the white literary establishment, Brooks was increasingly drawn to the black arts movement and its emphasis on political action and social engagement. Not a great deal happened to the poetry. You might be surprised to have me say that, but what happened to me was um, spiritual <laughs> uh, and social. These people knew a lot about what was happening in the society. I was an optimist, and I still am by way of being an optimist, but I was a complete optimist then. And I thought that if blacks were nice enough and um, uh, proper enough and all that stuff, everything would turn out okay. Well, these young people that I met in those times, uh, 67, 68, would have none of that kind of attitude. They felt that uh, um, their address should be to themselves. They felt that uh, blacks had so much to say to each other 
and um, that's what they were about the business of doing. A Negro English instructor called her a fine Negro poet. A white critic says she's a credit to the Negro race. One of the younger poets Gwendolyn Brooks met was Hakeem Adabudi, founder of Third World Press. Into the 60s, a word was born, black. And when black came poets, and from the poets' ballpoints came black, double black. Purple black, blue black, Ben black was black day before yesterday. Here's an excerpt from one of several poems Madhubuti wrote in dedication to Gwendolyn Brooks. I just discovered black, Negro black, unsubstanced black. And everywhere the lady Negro poet appeared, the poets were there. They listened and questioned and went home feeling uncomfortable, unsound, and so untogether. They read and reread, wrote and rewrote, and came back the next time to tell the lady Negro poet how beautiful she was, is, and how she had helped them. And she came back with how necessary they were and how they helped her. The poets walked, and a space filled the vacuum between them and the lady Negro poet. You hear one of the black poets say, bruh, they've been calling that sister by the wrong name. We did such exciting things. And we went out in the park and recited our poetry, and we went to city jail, and the most exciting thing we did was to just walk into a tavern, some seven or eight of us, and someone like Haki Madhubuti, once known as Don L. Lee, would say, look folks, we're gonna lay some poetry on you. And it was interesting how we were received in these places. I mean, some people say, they must be crazy, you know, they mind. And they would turn from their drinks temporarily and listen to poetry, which they had not come into the tavern to hear, of course. You must understand that during this period, all of us were community-minded, and we were, were, you know, activist poets, political poets, cultural poets, and we felt that the, wor- the words that we were writing needed to be shared and tested. Which brings us to Gwendolyn Brooks's most famous poem, written earlier and published in The Bean Eaters. A poem like uh, my own uh, short, We Real Cool, would be the kind of thing that I could read in such an atmosphere. We real cool, the pool players, seven at the golden shovel. We real cool, we left school, we lurk late, we strike straight, we sing sin, we thin gin, we jazz June, we die soon. Gwendolyn Brooks reading We Real Cool. Despite its popularity, this poem has actually been banned. Because of the word jazz, which some people have considered a sexual reference, that was not my intention, though I have no objection if it helps anybody. But I was thinking of music. My uh, supreme operating word for myself and others is kindness. I believe that if whites uh, are interested in kindness, they will automatically do much of what is right toward blacks. And they can help matters along by not being silent in their own midst 
when wrongs are being um, perpetrated or uttered. But kindness wasn't a panacea for Brooks. She also believed in taking action, and she believed fervently in the importance of black people discovering and celebrating their identity. She did not like the term African-American. She called it excluding. She preferred to think of all blacks as family. In 1980, Brooks published a book called Primer for Blacks, about the need for black self-awareness. The book was mostly prose, but there were also some poems. Here's the poem that gave the book its title. Blackness is a title, is a preoccupation, is a commitment blacks are to comprehend and in which you are to perceive your glory. The conscious shout of all that is white is it's great to be white. The conscious shout of the slack in black is it's great to be white. Thus all that is white has white strength and yours. The word black has geographic power pulls everybody in. Blacks here, blacks there, blacks wherever they may be. And remember, you blacks, what they told you. Remember your education. One drop, one drop maketh a brand new black. Oh, mighty drop. And because they have given us kindly so many more of our people, blackness stretches over the land. Blackness, the black of it, the rust red of it, the milk and cream of it, the tan and yellow tan of it, the deep brown, middle brown, high brown of it, the olive and ochre of it. Blackness marches on. The huge, the pungent object of our prime outright is to comprehend, to salute, and to love the fact that we are black, which is our ultimate reality, which is the lone ground from which our meaningful metamorphosis, from which our prosperous staccato group or individual can rise. Self-shriveled blacks begin with gaunt and marvelous concession. You are our costume and our fundamental bone. All of you, you colored ones, you negro ones, those of you who proudly cry, I'm a half Indian. Those of you who proudly screech, I've got the blood of George Washington in my veins. All of you, you proper blacks, you half blacks, you wish I weren't blacks. 
nigger rolls and niggerings. You. Gwendolyn Brooks reading Primer for Blacks. This has been the Chicago Poetry Tour podcast. This was tour number 21, the Hall Library. The narrator was Richard Steele. The opening music is by the Deep Blue Organ Trio, used with permission of Delmark Records. The full tour with 22 sites is available for free. You can take the multimedia tour online or download audio files at poetryfoundation.org. I'm Ed Herman. Thanks for listening.